It is unbelievably good to be with you today. Last time I was up here, um, it was about 11 years ago. Um, I was looking toward that back door, waiting for them to open, and I heard then beat out my vision play as Meredith came in, so uh, my wife. So um, I say that to let you know that the journey from there to here, as you will hear, it was um, not always a straight path, but it was one in which I saw the goodness of God all along the way. And so um, this morning, as we have heard from the passage that comes out of Exodus chapter 33, I am just struck with how fixated Moses is on the presence of God. As a leader, this is his desire. His desire is for his people to have the presence of God that dwells among them. He knows that in, for, in order for this to happen, he as a leader has to have the presence, and then also the people as well have to have it. But you see in our passage today that there's a little bit of doubt in him. As he is having this exchange with the Lord, not knowing will God's presence remain with the Israelites or will it go? You see, the journey from, from, from Moses as he sits at the base of Mount Sinai has been a long journey. And in some ways, he, he has now uh, gone up and down that mountain around seven times. That's to the point that our passage takes place right here. Up and down. And one of his main roles with the Israelites is to go up and to uh, hear from God and bring that back down to the Israelites and share with them what God said. Up and down. But that's his, that's his role as the leader. His role is to be one of intercessory and also mediation for his people. And I'm reminded uh, specifically uh, two of the previous trips I think were particularly difficult for Moses. We are told that um, before our passage today, the trip that he went up to when he, when he visited God on Mount Sinai, it is there that he stayed up there for 40 days. And he was up there for 40 days as God showed him the commands. He told them how to obey. It, it talked to Moses about how, how to obey him. And we hear that as he is up there on the mount, preparing, learning all of these things, he comes back down to the Israelites. And on his way down, as he reaches the base, they are there. Um, they could not wait for his return. They had already created idols, started worshiping those idols. And we hear that Moses, in his frustration, he breaks, those idol he breaks the idols, he breaks the commandments, and he... Um, he he punishes his people. But what I appreciate about Moses in this, as he punishes his people, even though it happens, is that Moses understands that him as a leader, he's going to go back up to that mountain. And when he goes back up to that mountain, he's going there to intercede on behalf of his people to God. He understands that for his people to go on, for them to continue on in their journey, that there is only one way, and that is with the presence of God. And see, he goes back up there. And when he's back up on the mountain and he's talking with God, he tells God, God, save my people, take me instead of them. And so now as he comes back down and we're looking at this passage at the base of the mountain, and Moses is there in front um, with, in the tent, um, and he has formed the tent of meeting, and he is there at the base of the mountain. We see this exchange that he is having. 
And in this exchange, he's pleading with God, God, please don't leave my people. You know, for me, this exchange right here that Moses is happening, having with God is one that reminds me of 2020. Uh, 2020, I was a pastor in a church uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, it was the midst of uh, the COVID pandemic. And I remember one day in particular, um, I went, uh, I had two meetings scheduled. Uh, the first meeting that I had scheduled, um, I went and I visited a parishioner whose husband was in the hospital and he was on the ventila a ventilator and suffering from COVID. And then the second meeting I had that day, um, I went to uh, host a, a group of our uh, parents of high school students. And I sat with them uh, in their home and I uh, talked with them because they were at kind of the end of their rope uh, because uh, their students, their kids, um, were suffering from anxiety and they were suffering from depression because of what was going on. And I remember I got into the car after that meeting and I kind of had this moment where I was like, God, if you don't give me your presence, if you don't give us your presence, how are we going to go forth from here? How will we go on? And I think this is a real challenge that we all face um, in ministry, is this idea that we face these, ch these challenges, and if we're not careful, they can, they can shake and they can rock the very core of our calling. When Oskin is, talks about calling, he talks about it in a way that we have a primary calling, and a secondary calling. That primary calling that we have is to God. And he says that um, our primary calling is to be in Christ and Christ in us. In, in our primary calling, it recognizes that our identity, first and foremost, is as the beloved children of God, not for what we do, but because of what he has done for us. And our secondary callings are what flow out of that. You see, the secondary callings is what God calls us to do or where God calls us to go. These are extensions of our primary calling, and they are how we reflect God's character in the world around us. And what often happens so much in ministry is that when challenges come up, when they come along, they test our identity, and they, re, re, they kind of reveal the prioritization of our call. You see, we see this example of this later on in the life of Moses. If you know that uh, in Deuteronomy 34, Moses is standing on Mount Nebo. And he's standing over there and he's surveying the promised land. And when he's surveying the promised land, he knows that he's not going to be able to step foot in the promised land. Now, if his identity is wrapped up in being a leader of the Israelites, of being a mediator of the Israelites of bringing the Israelites into the promised land, yet he knows that he is not going to be able to do that. What then happens to him? What then happens to his identity? And so, where does that leave him? You know, I, I had my own Mount Nebo moment. It was in 2019 in the Taoyuan International Airport in Taiwan. We had just served five years on the mission field. I was at the baggage check-in on the airline. I was sitting there, um, standing there with my family, uh, my wife and two girls. We had 10 boxes that each weighed 50 pounds each because that's what we could carry and that comprised of everything that we owned. And um, as we were checking them in, I remember stopping and looking back and realizing that this would probably be the last time 
that um, at least we would serve here long term. You know, I was a missionary, and I knew that as I stepped foot on that airplane, that I was probably not a missionary anymore. I mean, I don't know if it really works that way, but that's what, I, that's what my mind thought, right? <laughs> and so uh, I also knew that waiting at home, I didn't have a job as well. And so, you know, I was emotionally, spiritually, physically tired. But you know what? If somebody asked me, do you have a calling? I would have said, yes. Yes, I have a calling. Because I have a caller. And when you have a caller, you have a calling. And my calling at that time was to listen to the voice of my caller, even if it was nothing else. My guess is that many of you here as well will have your Mount Nebo moment. At some point, you're going to be in a ministry role, and you're going to be no longer to be in that role, or there is some aspiration or expectation that you have, and you're not, not going to be able to enter the place where you thought that you should be able to enter. And you're going to stand there, and you're going to survey over what you can't have or what you no longer have. And you're going to have to come to the conclusion or come to this uh, question of what is my identity and who is it in. For some of you, it will be in front of a congregation giving your last benediction, knowing that you will never do that again. Others, it will be in your parking lot of your workplace, stepping into your car the last time before you go home. And others, it might be dropping off your, kid, your youngest kid off to college, standing in their doorway, and knowing when you go home, things are going to look very, very different. Though our secondary callings might change, and end abruptly, the one to whom we are called never changes. You know, there's another aspect of this passage that stuck out to me, and it's God's goodness. And when I read this, when I was reading through this passage, it's the one thing that I think kind of took me by surprise. And what I mean by this uh, is that in Exodus uh, 33, 19, when Moses says, show me your glory, the Lord responds, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And then he continues on in 21, uh, there is a place near me where you may stand in the rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, and my face uh, must not be seen. See, it's interesting to me when Moses asks, God, show me your glory, and, and God's response is, I will let my goodness pass over you. I mean, it's almost like that there's an interchange here between glory and goodness. And in some ways, I think that the goodness of God maybe even reveals a little more about his character that we can kind of define. You know, um, during challenges, such as the one that Moses is experiencing, seeing the goodness of God allows us to hold on to our call. The psalmist says this in chapter 27, verse 13, says, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And as I've been processing this passage, I've been thinking a lot about God's goodness um, in relation even to my own call. I used to swim uh, in the open water 
And uh, it's interesting when you swim in open water because it, it's easy to get lost or just to kind of swim in circles. Uh, you, you can't see below. It's usually dirty and murky below, so you, there's nothing really to see to track. And so what you do is you do something called sighting. And so with sighting, you are supposed to locate an object offshore or in the water that's fixed. So that way, every time you come up for a breath, you can lift your head up and you can spot it and say, okay, I'm on the right track. So it gives you the ability to know how far you've gone, but then it also gives you the ability to know where you're going as well. And um, in many ways, I think we have locations like this in our lives. They're fixed locations. And when you cross into them and you step into them, you remember uh, different experiences or times you've had in those locations. And for me, Estes Chapel is one of them. I kind of mentioned it earlier about uh, uh, 10 years ago, but um, my first time in here was in 2007. I was on a campus visit. I sat in the back back there. And when I sat down, I was like, okay, God, um, I I don't know what I'm going to do vocationally, but I know that you have called me here. And it was a huge impact on my life. And that's when I decided to come to Asbury. Then in 2010, I sat kind of in the middle over there. And it was during an evening worship service. And there was some stuff in my life that, um, that would affect my ministry and my call. And I knew that if, if God didn't deal with it now, if I didn't deal with it now, it wouldn't get dealt with. And so it was in that worship service that God brought it up to the surface and dealt with it. And it brought a community around me to deal with it as well. And so, and then in 2012, as I mentioned, uh, that's when, um, a week after graduation, I was, uh, Meredith and I were married in here, and it was there where family and friends from all over my life kind of came into this place, and I, and I say it, kind of say that, that was the start of a new call in the sense of a call uh, toward being a husband, and a, ca- a call eventually toward being um, a, a, um, a father. And then in 2016, as we came back from uh, the missionary field on furlough, um, it was, uh, we, we came here, we brought our oldest um, daughter here, and it was, uh, came in here, we sat down, and it was probably one of the most challenging seasons of my life. A time in which you sit down in a place, and we were sitting down here, and I just felt like I was a shell of who I used to be. And then as I came back here, uh, just, just this year, um, every time I step foot into this place, it's like there's like snapshots that are overlaid on each other, right? So you step in, and I remember 2007, and I remember 2012, and 16, and, and all of these things, and they just kind of overlay. And what's amazing about it is when that happens, you're able to see the goodness of God, but you're able to see how he has grown and how he has invested in you and how you um, even perspective and what's amazing is some of those experiences I mean they were like like mountaintop highlights and then some of them were like valleys and you know really difficult but his goodness is seen through it all and I would even say that in in the valleys it's during that time where when you come out of it that's when you see his goodness so potent and um I would even argue with people, it's the time where he, he shapes us the most and he forms us the most. And um, it's, it's probably because it's the time where he redeems us the most through them. Um, and so the hymn that we sang this uh, at the beginning of this service was called Rock of Ages, Clef for Me. 
You see, it was written by Augustus Toplady. Augustus Toplady, uh, it's a strong name, by the way. Um, uh, the lyrics, uh, he uh, come from the Exodus 33 passage. Uh, some people believe that Top Lady, uh, the idea of the hymn actually came from Charles Wesley, because Charles Wesley, who was born about 20 years before Top Lady, um, he put out um, his hymns of the, on the Lord's Supper. And I thought it would be appropriate to read Wesley's words as we prepare to approach the Lord's uh, table today. And this is uh, Wes what Wesley wrote. He said, Rock of a uh, Israel, cleft for me, for us, for all mankind. See thy feeblest followers see, who call thy death to mind. Scion in the weary land, us beneath thy shade receive. Grant us in the cleft to stand, and by thy dying live. God took Moses, and he placed him in the cleft of the rock, so that his goodness might pass over him. But for us, no longer does the hand of God have to uh, veil our eyes from seeing his goodness. We have seen the fullness of God's goodness revealed in Jesus, our rock, and our redeemer. His side was pierced for us on the cross, and the wound in his side is the cleft of the rock that has been opened to us, where water and blood flowed from his side. So as we approach the Lord's table, we do so remembering that our first call will always be to the one who invites us to drink of the living water so that we may live and may not die. We are also reminded that it is in him and that he is in us. We can rest in the cleft of the rock and be the safe place in which all of our challenges we can face. It is because of the goodness of God that we are brought into him and kept safely concealed. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, bring us deep into the cleft of the rock. All the world can be falling apart, and it will not touch us as if we are concealed in you. You cover us, you protect us, you wash us, you renew us, you guide us, and you love us eternally. We do not lose heart because we have seen your goodness in the land of the living. Amen.